Revelation 16, 1 through 21, and the judgment is done. That's what we're going to learn about in this, in this study. Judgment is finished. So let's begin reading about these uh, seven bowls that are about to be poured out upon the world. This is the last half of the tribulation. This is the second half of Daniel's 70th week before the Lord returns. And we will see that beginning to be prepared for um, as we get to the end of this chapter. But let's read. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of dead men. And every living creature in the sea died. As we come to this last manifestation of God's judgment uh, on the earth before the establishing of his kingdom, um, there is all kinds of trouble. These judgments, they read very much, as we talked about last week, like the seven trumpets or the six trumpets um, that were sounded. The seventh trumpet gave way to the seven bowls. But if you go and you read back through, it's, it's a very similar read. But you'll notice that the destruction that happens in the bowl judgments is more significant than the judgment that came under the trumpets. And so, yes, this is a, a fiercer um, pouring out of God's wrath. However, um, you know, we're measuring one devastation against another devastation. You're re reading, you know, one judgment of God and, and his wrath being poured out against another judgment. So yes, there is a greater intensity here, um, but I think that really too much has been made of that to try and draw a theological conclusion. It is all the wrath of God that's happening in the great tribulation. But we look here at verses 1 and 2, and we see that sores come upon those who worship the beast. Now, those that receive the mark are now going to be marked with these terrible sores. It says loathsome, loathsome sores or, you know, ugly sores or ulcers kind of a thing. Just, I mean, miserable pain. You think of Job, but he had those for a different reason. And that's what's going on. There is a similarity between the bowl judgments, and I would say that, therefore, the trumpet judgments, and the plagues of Egypt. And there's a, a greater overarching principle that we can be seen as well. And each of the ten plagues during uh, the days leading to the Exodus, the days of Moses, um, what was going on? Well, there was persecution of the children of Israel. And God was wanting to establish them as a nation in their promised land. And the Pharaoh was unwilling to let the people of Israel go. And then in a similar manner, we see here at the end days, there's one like Pharaoh, but even worse, who we've referred to as the Antichrist, who's trying to destroy the, uh, the children of Israel and 
to, to really to obliterate them so there could be no fulfillment of the prophecies that the Messiah would come and set up a kingdom in the land of Israel. And so there are, there are these similarities that we see happening in, you know, in kind of the big picture. But as you drill down, even on the, some of the different judgments, we're more familiar with the term plague in the, uh, in the uh, Exodus. So you can think about Exodus you know, chapter 8, chapter 9, and so forth, chapter 10, where we read about these 10 plagues. Um, so this plague here reminds us of the sixth plague of boils that afflicted the Egyptians in chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. Um, so there is that, there's that undertow that of, of, of thought and um, theme that's taking place. God, once again, is judging the nations that have come against his people, and he's waking up the nation of Israel. Although in chapter 16, it's just about his judgment on the nations. So the mark of the beast that many took out of, um, that, well, all of them took it for the allegiance and their worship of the Antichrist. To take the mark of the beast, but then without that mark, no one can buy, sell, or trade. And those that refuse that mark are those that will be hunted down and be, be put to death. And so this mark that people have taken out of worship and allegiance, saying that this man is God, those that want to take it because it's convenient, because it's easier, because it's what everybody's doing, because I want to buy, sell, and trade, suddenly that which has been something for acceptance and security becomes a point of terrible pain, literal pain in their bodies. Now, the text doesn't say it, but it would not be surprising if on the place where they take that mark, the worst of those, these sores are breaking out. That's just purely a speculation of mine, but it wouldn't be a surprise at all. And so we need to ponder. It's like, well, okay, what kind of application can we get for our lives from this? Well, okay, we're not going to be here when the Antichrist, at least it's highly recommended that you don't. And the way you can avoid that is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he's not going to pour out his wrath upon his children, on his bride, and she will be taken away. But what's the application in our life? I mean, we can sit here and say, yeah, those, you know, they had it coming. You know, what are they thinking? You know, persecuting the, uh, the people of God and uh, putting them to death. And, you know, just the, all of the terrible things, you know, they, they have it coming. But, you know, let's look at our, our, our own self in the mirror here. Are there things that we do and compromises we make because it's just easier? Because the acceptance, you know, of those around us is going to be easier, easier felt. And we don't want to go through um, standing out and being those that are um, different. Because besides the worship factor of the Antichrist, you know this is a motivation that is going on. And so each of us need to stop and to look and to evaluate. You know, am I looking for the shortcuts Am I, or am I willing to follow the Lord? And the Lord did not tell us it would be easy. He told us it would be difficult, as a matter of fact, didn't he? And so, um, yeah, the interpretation here has to do with the last days. Um, people on planet Earth that have taken the mark of the beast. But there is that application point for us just to stop and to ponder. Moving on to verse 3, we see then the second angel poured out his bowl. And the sea became like the blood of a dead man. 
and every living creature in the sea died. In Revelation 8.8, a third of the sea became blood, destroying a third of the ships and sea life. But here, all of the sea life, all of it is being impacted and is being uh, affected. This reminds us again, right, of there in Egypt, when God sent that plague of um, uh, the water being turned to blood, that Moses, as he touched the Nile, but it wasn't just the Nile, it was also all rivers, and it was all ponds, it was even the water in a bucket, and in a basin, it all turned to um, this uh, blood, as it's described. You know, the question that a lot of people have as well, is this the phenomenon of red tide? Um, well, okay, God could do that. And if it's red tide, then this is something that's never been experienced before. But we're going to read that it's also going to affect uh, not just the seas, but we're going to see that it's going to affect the, the freshwater sources there in verse 4 as well. And if it's anything like what's going on during the plague in Egypt, what about the water in a bucket? What about the water in, in the basin? So to simply, you know, attribute this to a, a natural um, explanation, it misses the point. If it is a natural explanation, it is something that has never been experienced and God is going to, um, you know, soup up that natural um, destructive process that we know is red tide and it's going to have a devastating impact so that something will take place that has never happened in the history of mankind. And that is all living creatures in the sea are going to die. Well, what kind of impact is that going to have upon this planet? It is, it's hard to even imagine, but it is a dis, I think it's safe to say it is a dismantling of the natural order on planet earth and it will not function anything like what we see here and now. So yeah, so it's, 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 a, it's the, the blood as of a dead man. It doesn't say it's the blood of a dead man, as of a dead man. So it's going to be that color and whatever actually is happening in the chemistry of that water, um, God has a lot of options available to himself. And whatever it is, is going to be terrible. And it's going to bring destruction. But you move on to verse 4. And it says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So red tide, mm, doesn't sound like red tide here. It's in a spring. So there's going to be some kind of uh, terrible devastation that comes upon the water systems of uh, this earth. And I, again, it's just hard to even imagine how man can uh, survive this type of devastation. It truly is going to be a desperate hour. Now here's the interesting thing. These men that are having this judgment are having this fall upon them for many reasons. But one of the reasons that we noted in chapter 15 is that as these seven angels come marching out of the temple and actually the, out of the Holy of Holies, and they make their way out. Who's out there in front? It's those that you cannot number that have been martyred for their faith. Those who have spilled the blood of God's saints during the tribulation will have nothing but blood wherever they turn. It's, it's meant to make a point. You've spilled the blood of my people. And if you want blood, then blood it is you will get. And it's going to impact and it's going to infect 
every um, water source that uh, man is dependent upon for both food and then also just for, for living. So we move on into verses 5 through 7, and we kind of get a little commentary about um, these uh, bowls as they are beginning to be poured out. Um, we've looked at these three so far. They've got sores, and then the, the two that are affecting the water sources. So verses 5 through 7, heaven just kind of it chimes in, like in chapter 15, and declares the righteousness of God in the midst of these judgments. And I heard the angel of the waters saying... Well, so evidently there's an angel that has a responsibility over the waters. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be. You're, you're eternal because you have judged these things for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. Think about the two uh, witnesses, right? And you have given them blood to drink for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. I'm not going to rehearse this completely, but we talked a lot about it last week in chapter 15 and how in the last day, um, in verse 4, it says, For your judgments, chapter 15, verse 4, For your judgments have been manifested. The statement that's going to be made at the end of the great tribulation, your righteous judgment, the things that you've done, your works, your acts, everybody's going to know. It'll be clearly obvious. It'll be manifested that you did the right thing. So I think it's important for us to, to realize um, this. Uh, Adam Clark uh, writes, they thirsted after blood and massacred the saints of God and now they have got a blood, now they have got blood to drink. And so just it's, it's a, a direct response against the martyrdom. Um, so we read about him being eternal. We read about him as Lord. He, has, he is the master over all. He is God Almighty. He has all power. And he is righteous. Understand this. God is not executing vigilante justice here. It's not the divine gone amok. It's true and righteous. You are doing what is right and what is, what is uh, deserved. You know, as... A man sows, he will also reap. And if you sow uh, to the whirlwind, you are going to reap corruption. You're going to reap death. And this is what they are experiencing. They are experiencing a storm that they did not expect when they were um, wiping out tens of thousands, who knows the number, it's an innumerable number, millions of people coming to faith during the tribulation period. This is not God out of, out of order. This is God doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And this is the interesting thing. Today, we find a lot of people that will say something like this. I can't follow God because no God would allow the kinds of things going on in the world today, if he's good, to happen. It'll be those same people that will look at the Lord saying, I am now stepping forward to do what you long, you know, um, uh, rebuked me for and blasphemed me, me for not doing in your timing. I'm going to bring judgment. Those same people will then begin to question and to point their finger into the face of God and questioning him in what he's doing. So on the one hand, 
people who point the finger at God because he's not doing something about the injustice. When he does something about the justice and people read about this and uh, come and say, well, I can't follow a God like that. Well, which is it? Do you want it to be right or do you want it to be wrong? But it really doesn't matter what you want or, or, or decide because there's a Lord God Almighty who has always been and will always be that will do it in his time and his way. You can get on board or you cannot. And he gives man that opportunity uh, to make that decision concerning him. But heaven, in the midst of these devastations, just wants to remind us that God is true and righteous in his judgments. He is not out of control. We move on and we see the fourth angel pouring out his bowl. And we read, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. They evidently know who's pouring out the wrath, because they know who to blame. So this is not, this is not ignorant people in the sense of, well, they just didn't know any better. They fully know. That is God's judgment. The two witnesses have proclaimed. The 144,000 have proclaimed. All those that are being martyred for their faith are proclaiming the word of the Lord. There are two angels flying throughout the earth proclaiming the everlasting gospel. There is the testimony of scripture. They know why these things are happening. But their heart is hard. And they are unwilling to repent. And so, and earlier in Revelation 8, 12, the, we see that the sun was deprived of a portion of its light and its heating capacities were diminished. But now we go to the other extreme. Now it's the, 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 the sun putting forth more heat than um, this world has ever seen. So is this a result of all the wars that have maybe happened and somehow damaged the atmosphere? Is this just the Lord allowing the world to begin to wind down. And, and here it is, this uh, phenomenon of the sun scorching men with fire, just burning them. You can't get away. Again, no water. You've got this, this intense heat that's coming and scorching people. But in all of this, they're unwilling to repent or to give him glory. You know, many will say, well, if people just had, you know, if they knew, if they could see, you know, things... Then they would repent. That's never been the case. It's never been the case that a, that a person who has to see a miracle in order to get right. We, we don't see that because, you, you know, what about Pharaoh? He saw things and he would relent, but he would not repent. And he would relent long enough just to see that trouble kind of come off the land of Egypt, and then immediately we, he would harden his heart and he would change his mind. So there is a, Jesus said, you know, it's an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. So signs have their place, don't get me wrong. Signs and wonders, Jesus pointed to the things that he did to show that he really was the Messiah. But this idea, well, if people could just see a miracle, then they would all be right. And then they would get it all together. I mean, I've shared this story so many times before, but I was, uh, I, was I don't know, probably 19 years old. And we were on a missions trip there in Australia. And um, we were witnessing to two young men 
and they were probably 16, 15, they were much younger than me, and we're talking to them, and um, I'm standing here, there's another young man here, and there's a guy here, and this guy that I'm talking to right here is, he, he's feeling, you can see he's under conviction, but this guy over here, he was so hard-hearted, he was mocking, he was laughing, he's telling his friend, don't ask these questions, come on, let's go, and, um, and he said, he goes, you know what, um, he goes, if I saw a miracle, then I would believe. And I said, you know, if God was to perform a miracle right here, right at this moment, you still would not believe. And he said, I would believe. And I promise you, this is not a secondhand story. This is my story. He fell flat on his face, out cold. And um, when that happened, the young man across from me, um, his eyes were big, but mine were probably bigger. But um, he looked at me and he goes, what did you do to him? I said, I didn't do anything, but you better get right with the Lord. <laughs> and um, then we attended to the young man who had just fallen flat on his face. And so we, we, we rolled him over and we looked at him. He opened his eyes and he said, that wasn't a miracle. The first thing he said. That wasn't a miracle. I'm like, well, you can say whatever. He goes, I do this all the time. I go, yeah, sure you do. It's interesting, the timing, but, but it's not that. They're going to see signs. They're going to see wonders. They're going to see miraculous things taking place, but they will not repent, and they will not give him glory. It's not having the right environment. Man had the right environment, and he turned on God. It's not if man can see, you know, things. Well, if I could just see God. They saw him, and they said, let's kill him, and they nailed him to a tree. Well, if we could just see signs and wonders. Well, they saw signs and wonders and at the hands of Jesus, and they said he was doing it by what? The power of Satan. They're going to see signs and wonders coming upon them. They're actually going to be feeling the thirst for, because of these plagues. They're going to feel the heat because of the sun, and they will still not repent and give God glory, but they will blaspheme the one who's doing it. That's the heart of man at the end of days. Again, application for us, when the Lord speaks to us, do we repent? When he nudges our hearts as followers and believers and says, enough of this, more of that. I want you to say this. I want you to let go of that. I want you to embrace this. What's our response? Do we say, yes, Lord God Almighty? Or do we say, well, you know, I really don't need to do that to be saved, do I, Lord? And we begin to, you know, not give him the glory that he, is, that he is due. Moving on, verses 10 and 11. We come to the fifth bowl. It says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. This reminds us of the ninth plague, Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. But in this plague, there's something added. There's a pain that's associated with this darkness that covers the land. Now, um, we've got some really good opportunities for what their pain might be. Uh, they have the worst sunburn that anybody's ever had on planet Earth. They don't have water, and they've got sores all over their bodies. So, I, you know, a lot of commentators try to uh, associate um, the darkness as producing some kind of pain. Okay, maybe it could happen. I mean, God, again, he's Lord God Almighty. He can be 
He's rather creative, and he can do that in his judgments as well. But I would just take it as they have sores from these, you know, uh, boils on their body. They're, they're not able to drink clean water, and now they've been scorched by the sun. And there they fall, they have darkness fall upon the land. To me, this is just so amazing that God is, I, I mean, it's not an exact redo of the Exodus, but it's like, if you want to see it, it's right there. Wait a minute. Our waters turn to blood. I mean, isn't there something in the Old Testament? Didn't Moses do something like that? And these boils and, and this darkness. And yet they will still, we read here, not repent of their deeds. Well, what's their deeds? Worshiping the Antichrist, persecuting the nation of Israel, and martyring believing saints of the tribulation. Besides all the other things that man always does. So his heart hardens even further. Verses 12 through 14. It says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. So there's your unholy trinity, and there's a frog for each one of them, right? An unclean spirit for each one of them. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth, and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. God is wrapping it up. And he's preparing. And he is deceiving the nations and the generals and the presidents and the prime ministers and the Antichrist and whoever to gather into the land of Israel. One of the things that's notable here is that the Euphrates River is dried up making the way for the kings of the east. Now listen, some time ago, there was a whole bunch that was made out of um, a, a Time article. I think it was a Time article going back probably into the 70s, and it said that uh, China could fill an army of 200 million men. And everybody's like, well, that's got to be it. No, I don't think that's it. The 200 million man or the 200 million person army is one we've already read of. And this is a demonic horde of 200 million demons that are coming upon the earth and terrorizing the earth. Every time we read in scripture the reference to the kings of the east, it was referring to nations like um, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And it is in Babylon, and we're not going to get into this too much here this evening, but it's in Babylon that's going to become the headquarters for the Antichrist. What's on the banks of the Euphrates? Babylon. This is where Iraq is, modern-day Iraq. And so there would be a rebuilding, I believe, it's going to be a literal rebuilding of that empire. And the Antichrist is going to say, and he's going to establish it right there. So this river Euphrates drying up makes it so easy for them to come. No, but you think about this, and if you dial it back 2,000 years ago, a river drying up for armies to cross was highly, highly significant. And, you know, maybe it will be again. It's like, well, we have all these, you know, modern weapons, and yeah, but there's also ways to, de you know, um, to, to immobilize all electronics 
So, I mean, it could become significant in that sense again. But think about this. Maybe the sign and wonder is the river Euphrates drying up. And so, and not, I mean, yes, now the kings of the east can come that way. But rather than it being, well, how are we going to cross this river? We can cross rivers today. Armies can do that. They, have, they do it all the time. This is not something that makes it so difficult. So um, the river Euphrates dries up. Maybe this is one of the many signs and wonders that is being performed um, by these, um, well, by the, the beast and the false prophet and, and the dragon. And yet it isn't just them, but it's all the earth is going to come and they are going to gather together and they're going to come to fight. They're going to be gathered, we're going to read, you know, into the valley uh, of the, the Jezreel Valley, into the battle of Armageddon. So again, the kings of the east always in scripture is a reference to that Mesopotamia region, not to China. And so could China come? Sure, China could come. Maybe they'll be there. I mean, but in the Bible, if we're going to be consistent, that, that's not who we are referring to. Deceiving spirit drawing nations into, the, into battle, sent by God to deceive. You know, the Lord reveals, but when God says enough is enough, he can then even deceive those and allow them to, to fall headlong into judgment. And that is what is happening here. A deceiving spirit drawing the nations together for this last great battle. Um, as a way of cross-reference, turn with me over to um, Daniel. So put, put a marker there in Revelation. But turn with me over to Daniel chapter 11. In verse 40. So the Antichrist is ruling and reigning. He starts out with having uh, nations that are all aligned with him. But it, as we read this, it appears that his, his alliances are breaking down. So we read, at the same time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Just be Egypt, presumably. And the king of the north shall Come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, which makes it um, mostly uh, modern-day Jordan today. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But the news from the east, and that's where I wanted to get us to. But news from the east, and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So we can't put too much into this, but um, 
it would seem at the last days here, where we are in the, you know, the, the drying up the, of the Euphrates, um, that maybe the, the news of the East is, is, yeah, those that were once aligned with him are now coming to, to do battle. Um, and, and yet, they will have this in common. Although that alliance is going to fall apart, and we've seen this even in the life of Jesus. Whereas they, people would otherwise be enemies, they join together to be against God. And so in the, the last battle, the battle of Armageddon, yeah, that is going to be what's going on. So, so maybe as this um, river Euphrates is drying up, now these nations are coming and he's hearing of this and he comes back up. Something to think about. But here's what we do know for certain. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. The nations of the world are going to gather together to fight and to battle against God. As we read there, as you're finding Psalm 2, let me just read again uh, verse 14 in Revelation 16. For uh, there are spirits of demons performing signs which go out of the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. They're coming to fight against God. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. That's the day we're reading about. I mean, it's kind of, a, it's an eerie psalm to read because God has this laugh of, you've come to fight against me. You've, you've come to do battle against me. Here's some advice. Don't do it. Fear my son. Worship him. Kiss him. Trust in him. Otherwise, you're going to experience my wrath. And so the Lord has warned, even going back into the days of the psalmist. So this is a battle that is being gathered. Now there's, in the end, end times, there are going to be three great battles. Okay, so we're reading about one of them right now. Um, the battle of Armageddon, okay? This is the Lord gathering them together. But there's a battle that I, I believe precedes this, and there'll be a battle that comes after. I know there'll be a battle that comes after. This is clear. So what is the, the first end times battle that is listed? Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And we read that the Lord will gather in the latter days his, his people Israel. They'll be revived as a nation. They will come back into their land as a people that have come out of a, a sword, out of a, a destruction. And they will dwell safely on the mountains 
of Israel. They had been long desolate, but now they are inhabited again. And this is where Israel is today. They are back in the land. They are dwelling safely. Um, they come out of, in 1948, they came back out of the, uh, the great holocaust of World War II. And now they're upon their lands. But we read in those chapters, Ezekiel 38 and 39, that the armies will gather together. And the armies are mentioned, which if, if, if they, if, you know, the geopolitical map remains the same. They're all Muslim nations that are coming to destroy Israel. You can read it on your own, Ezekiel 38 and 39. But they're going to be wiped out on the mountains of Israel. So I, I would say that that is the first last days or end times battle that, that actually takes place just prior to um, the beginning of the Great Tribulation. So this is something that's going to happen right before the end. Now, Others would say, no, 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 not so fast. That is the battle of Armageddon. That Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the same battle as the, we're reading about at the second coming of Christ. And okay, maybe it is one in the same. I tend to lean to the fact that this is going to be prior to. And the main reason, if you're wanting to know, well, why wouldn't you? Is because in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it says nothing about the return of the Lord or the setting up of his kingdom. It seems like a strange thing to leave out. So um, it's the silence, really, that I think screams so loud to me that this is different. Um, the second great battle is the Battle of Armageddon, which we're talking about. But the final battle um, it will be when the Lord has reigned upon this earth for a thousand years and Satan is released and there he will uh, rebel. Those who um, have been born during this time period, they'll rebel against uh, the Lord, and they will fight again. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. We'll get it. We'll talk about it later. But they, these are some of the, the three great battles that are mentioned at the end of times. Ezekiel 38, 39. Um, what we're reading about here, the battle of Armageddon, and the final battle um, that'll happen at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me back in chapter 16. An exhortation is given to the remaining believers that are still dwelling upon the world, upon the earth at this time. It says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Well, that's a pretty familiar metaphor the Lord uses. He's used this many times in Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 3. I mean, it's, it's one that's used often. And the idea of one coming as a thief is you're unaware. It's going to take you by surprise. He says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. It's a way of saying that you are, you're walking in righteousness. You're walking in holiness. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So, um, ghetto was a city. That is, um, you can go to today. It's a, a, a city of runes. Um, you can look at the archaeological digs. Har being Mount, the Mount of Megiddo. But um, Armageddon, um, or Megiddo, excuse me, is in the Jezreel Valley, which is really, really large. And so um, there is this one battle that's going to, or this, this gathering together, actually, that will happen in this this massive valley, Israel's largest valley. Um, and it's called the Jezreel Valley. And Megiddo is one that sits on the edge of, of this valley. And um, this is where they're all going to gather. 
the kings of the east are going to come, those that are coming from the north, they're going to be filling up this, this uh, battlefield. There's been many battles in scripture fought in this location. Deborah and her battle over Sisera in Judges chapter 5. Gideon over the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. Pharaoh over King Josiah in 2 Kings 23. But historically, it was said by some that there have been over 200 battles fought right there. I mean, this is, going back to 1468 BC is one of, of the earliest that's, that's noted. One of the last great battles that was fought there was uh, Lord Allenby with the, the British. So, I mean, there, there's just been, this has been a chosen battlefield um, throughout history. And it's going to be where the, the armies gather together to begin to fight into war against God Almighty. We wrap it up there in verses 17 through 21. And here we see that there's going to be a great earthquake accompanied with a severe storm. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Now that's what we're waiting to hear. That's what we can't wait to hear. Those three little words. It is done. It's, if, you're, if you're familiar, when Jesus said, It is finished. Finish is a Greek word, tetelestai. This is a Greek word, genomai. It's not the same word, but the idea is it's come to an end. Things are over. When Jesus said that on the cross, the atonement for man's sin was finished. There was nothing else that could be done or needs to be done. When this announcement is made from heaven, it is done. That means the battle is over. And there was noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Well, Israel is set in a really good place. Um, to one of the greatest fault lines, you know, that exists. Um, the, what is it called? The African Rift. Um, and just you have these two plates that are shifting. That's why, um, uh, you know, you have the Dead Sea that's so low right down there. It's, it's in that little kind of region. One of the, and it is primed for a, a place to be, earth, uh, to be a great earthquake. It's going to be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Verse 19, now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations not just nation, but the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. That's how bad the earthquake. You're going to, I mean, mountains, as the earth begins to shift and to move, you're going to see mountains just like, boom, gone. You're going to see islands that are no longer there. You might see some new ones appear too. We'll have a bird's eye view. Don't worry. But this is going to be, this is the earth is going to be shaken like she has never been shaken before. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent, 75 to 100 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. Again, we go back to that Egypt scene, right? The seventh plague in Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 35. So the seventh bowl ends 
um, with God's judgment and saying it is done. At the conclusion, it is done. And so the task of waking up the nation of Israel and judging the nations of the world will be finished at the conclusion of the seventh bowl at the great earthquake. That is the last and final thing that will take place. It's at this same time that the nation of Israel will be awakened. The Lord says he will pour out upon Israel a spirit of supplication. That he also told them um, on the day that he went before them into the city of Jerusalem on the Palm Sunday. And he says, you know, you've re you're, you're going to reject me. You've turned me away. And you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, actually, they were saying that as he came in. But it was not a statement of sincerity of the nation. It was some of his disciples that were saying it. But in a nationalist, in national sense, they re rejected him. And the Lord said, you're not going to see me again until you say it over, but mean it, if you will. And when you do, that's, just, as we know now, that's going to align. The second coming of Christ is going to align with the, these judgments, these last um, uh, bold judgments that we read about, the gathering together in the Valley of Armageddon. And the Lord comes to fight. We'll see more about this as we go on. He's going to be the one that's fighting. He's going to be the one that's destroying the nations. I think one of the mistakes that we often make is we think of the Battle of Armageddon, um, you know, and really, um, is there even a battle that takes place there? This is where they're gathered together. Maybe it's going to be more like, you know, um, before D-Day, all of the armies of the world were gathered together in, right, in, in England to launch out to go do war. This is where they're gathering together. The battle is not going to be restricted to some one location up in the Valley of Megiddo because we read in other places that it's going to be happening 200 miles to the south even, down in a place like um, uh, in, in Jordan called Basra, um, down be, by the uh, ancient city of uh, uh, the Nabataeans called um, Petra. And so you have battle that's happening from the top of the country to the bottom of the country. And you have Jerusalem um, that's also seeing battle and the Lord coming and, and uh, bringing victory where that blood is going to be up to the horse's bridle. I mean, it's the whole land of Israel that's encompassed in a battle that's going on. And the Lord is gathered them together and he is the one that's doing the fighting. He is the one that is destroying them with the sword of his mouth. And they're going to be just devastated. It's going to culminate, I believe, that the climax of all of this is going to come after the battle is over, as Israel has called upon the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, as their Messiah, as they call upon him, he will come to re rescue a small remnant that has survived all of the devastation and all of the persecution that the Antichrist has thrown at, at um, God's chosen people. A small remnant will remain and the Lord will come to them and he will rescue them. But it's going to culminate with him putting his foot upon the Mount of Olives and it's splitting in two and him walking down into um, the city of Jerusalem to those um, beleaguered Jews that have gathered there. And we, many of the prophets write about this. Zechariah writes about this. 
But this is all that's being primed. This is all, all chapter 16 is getting it all ready for those events to take place. He's drawing them in. They're being deceived. The, the Euphrates River is opened up. There's uh, signs and wonders are being done that's convincing the nations we need to go to war. This is our opportunity. And then it will be all over. And, or we should say, then it will all begin. Afresh and anew with the Lord ruling and reigning upon the earth. So now listen, this is one place that kind of gets us ready for um, the battle of Armageddon. And we're introduced to Babylon, who we mentioned a little bit. Next week, as we move into chapter 17, um, if you just look, uh, look forward a little bit, you can see that there's a whole lot to say about Babylon as we move into the next couple of chapters. So you can read ahead and begin to, uh, to look at this. And I'll just say this. Um, the two cities that are mentioned the most in Scripture are Jerusalem and Babylon. And um, we, you know, for a long time, people, believers, godly men and women said, well, you know, Jerusalem is now just, a, it's, you know, it's not a literal place that the Lord is going to rule and reign from. So much has happened and, you know, the Jews are not there. It's no longer significant because the church is the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, excuse me. And, and they had this idea, well, now here we are. We see uh, a thriving nation of Jews, ethnic Jews that have been brought back into the land, just like the Lord said. Now suddenly, everything that's going on, going on in a prophecy concerning Jerusalem has a very literal feel to it, as it always did, should have. Now we look at, at Babylon. Let's not make the same mistake with Babylon that people made about Jerusalem. Well, it's, it's insignificant. It's just kind of a few little tourist attractions that you know, uh, Saddam Hussein was working on before it all went sideways for him. Yeah, but just give it time. And this is going to become the seat of his power. And um, I think there is too much in Scripture to just see it as a figurative place. So we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more as we go. But let's pray. Lord, these are um, certainly dark, dark days that are coming upon this world. And we are grateful, Lord, that... These matters are in your hands and not our hands because we can't say true and righteous are all of our judgments. But Lord, we can say that of yours. We can't say that of a government that, you know, true and righteous are all uh, the judgments of a nation. But that can be said of you. You see all, you know all, you've got a plan for all. And, and we just, we stand back humbly and we say, Lord, um, it's hard to read. It's hard to think about this kind of devastation. But Lord, we know that you're righteous. And that we, we know that you're altogether lovely. And that you have been so patient with this world, even to this very hour, you are being patient. And you are giving man the time to repent and to see this long-suffering season as a chance for them to turn their hearts because you love them. And you're not willing that any should perish. Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness that you've shown to us. But Lord, may we understand that in the season of patience, in the season of your long suffering, we have been appointed to a task. And that is to prepare people, to get their hearts ready for, for your return. And Lord, may we be faithful in our task as, 
as individual followers, but also as, as your church. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray.